Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Great to see you all here. Let's worship the Lord because He is the only King forever. today. Let's worship him. Give him the praise today. Let's sing.
is victorious, and he is unmatched today and forever, and uh, we worship him today. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, so great to see you all here today. Thanks for being here with us at Peckway Church. I'm Scott Munson. I'm the pastor, uh, worship pastor, not the pastor, worship pastor here, and uh, it's our joy to always be here and to worship with you guys each and every week, and our mission is to connect people with God and one another, and so that's the reason we ask you guys to take out that green card found inside of your bulletin and online. There's going to be a connect link there in the chat window, but take out that card and go ahead and fill that out as I'm talking with you, but this is a great way for us to be able to provide resources, let you know about things that are going on here at Peckway Church, events coming up such as Easter or even this week we have men's breakfast. Uh, You can, I think, find information about that in your bulletin as well, and you can go to our website. But go ahead and uh, fill out that card. Also on the back of that card uh, is an area that you can write your prayer request. We love to pray with you guys, and thank you for trusting us to do that uh, each and every week. So, But uh, also, if you're a first-time guest, you can also take out your phone and take text the word hello to 717-872-5679. And uh, this is just a very easy way to open up a personal line of communication with us. Uh, Again, we can get you signed up maybe for the newsletter and let you know about events that are coming uh, here at Peckway Church. Uh, But give you everything that you need to see if this is a great fit for you here at Peckway Church. And also, if you have any questions uh, out at the welcome desk, you can come out there and uh, there's someone there who can meet with you. And, And if you have questions, you can ask that. We also have Bibles available there, not only in the pew in front of you, uh, but at that welcome desk. And then also there's a free book, if you're a first-time guest, that we would love to place in your hands. So come visit us and, uh, and ask your questions. So, you know, as we continue this, uh, this series that we're talking about, A Faith That Works, today we're going to be talking about wisdom. Now, I know earlier in the book of James he talks about wisdom, but today we're going to talk about this comparing or contrast of the world's wisdom versus godly wisdom. And so, you know, how many times do we maybe default to our flesh, to uh, how we just react in our human nature? Um, And we're not walking with God and letting the Spirit guide our lives and our, our walk. And so let's take a look at this video and see what the world's wisdom looks like versus God's wisdom. The world says, be first. But God says, the first shall be last. The world says, get all you can. God says, give to the poor. The world says, grow up fast. But God says, be like little children. The world says, look out for yourself. God says, Consider others ahead of yourself. The world says, fight for your rights. God says, blessed are the peacemakers. The world says, power and domination. God says, submission and servanthood. The world says, say it like it is. God says, speak the truth in love. The world says, justice, revenge, and hate. God says, mercy, forgiveness, and love. The world says, image is everything. But God says, you are made in his image. 
the world says, live like there's no tomorrow. And God says, he could return tomorrow. The world says, be the king of your own world. But God says, Jesus is king. In Zechariah 4, 6, he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And you know, when we walk with God in the spirit, when we're spending time in his word and we're seeing the wisdom of God's truth, it helps us so much to be able to do those verses that we saw, that when we go to step out and say something that we shouldn't say, like we talked about last week, our tongue, the Spirit of God can quicken us and make us snap to attention, and we go, I shouldn't say that. You know, how often maybe, uh, you know, I've come to Facebook, and you might get mad, and you want to say something, and those fingers want to go crazy. Phil talked about that last week, talking about bringing uh, not only our tongue under submission, but our fingers And then it's so hard. You cannot take back something that you say that you regret, right? So let's walk in the Spirit. Let's let God help us to not, you know, try to power up or try to overcome by our own strength and our own power, but to let Him help us win the battles that we fight with our minds, with our tongues, with our flesh. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we sing this song together, because the battle does belong to Him, and the victory comes through trusting Him and by, by the Holy Spirit. So let's worship Him today. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is a mountain, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I'm So when I fight, I fight on my knees With my hands lifted high Oh God, the battle belongs to you And every fear I lay at your feet I'll sing through the night Oh God, the battle belongs to you me who can be against me yeah for Jesus there's nothing impossible with you when all I see are the ashes you see the beauty When all I see is a cross, God, you see the empty tomb. So when I find out, find on my knees, with my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you. 
fortress you go before us nothing can stand against the power of our God you shine in the shadows you win every battle nothing can stand against the power of our God and almighty fortress you go before us Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. And almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows, you win every battle. Cause you can stand against the power of our God. So The battle belongs to him. And we serve a mighty God who is good. He's merciful and faithful. So let's continue worshiping him as we sing about his goodness this morning. Oh, 
God has been good to us. Would you have a seat for a moment? And just as we think about the goodness of God today and how, um, you know, maybe the things in our, our lives that um, have turned out differently than we might have expected, but they're still for our good. And um, so that's why we sing today. That's why we cry out to him with our voices uh, to be able to give thanks to him for the goodness of who he is and what he's done in our hearts and lives. And, um, you know, that makes me think about the way we give back to him. Um, I was reading this morning in the book of Mark, talking about, um, well, not only there, but just the condition of our hearts and what it looks like to love the Lord. And it says to love the Lord with all of our might, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, with all of our heart, and I might not have that exactly right, and you can look it up later, but then in turn, when we're following the Lord, when we're giving him our all, then it only in turn, um, it makes it easier for us to give back to him. And so, as I was saying, I was reading the book of Mark, talking about the rich and the poor and giving, and it talked about the widow's might and uh, what she gave, and how Jesus said she gave more than the rich man, because she gave from her heart. And God doesn't need our money, right? God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says. But, um, but it's, a, it's a part of our worship that we get to give back to the Lord. And so I would be, uh, I, we wouldn't have be a complete service if I didn't give us that opportunity to give today, to give back to the, to the Lord for the goodness uh, of, of his mercy and his kindness to us. And so Ways that we can give today, there are offering envelopes at the back of the room. If you need one of those, feel free to get up any time during the service and go get that. But we're going to pray in just a moment about the offering, about what the Lord has done and, and what he's calling us to do this morning. Don't feel pressured to give. 
we, that's not the point here. Uh, you know, that's how we support the ministries here at Peckway Church, is how we're able to, to reach out to people and how to provide the resources I talked about earlier. But if you'd like to give, you could do that in person. You can also text to give. There's information I think we can put on the screen here for a moment. I'm going to ask the online host to go ahead and put the give link in there. But again, it's totally between you and God, and it's an act of worship. And so let's go to him in prayer this morning as we bring that offering before him, as we prepare our hearts to continue our worship today, to hear this message about God's wisdom. So would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for your mercy, God for your goodness, that you say that we are victorious through you. We've sang about uh, how the battle of maybe our flesh and our hearts and our minds, God, how we have these contrasting ways of handling life. And so, Lord, I pray for wisdom today. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to you as we hear your message in just a few moments. God, we thank you for the, the awesome privilege of resources Uh, that we have, Lord, however meager they might be, but God, there's still a blessing from you. So would you help us, Lord, today um, to search our hearts and see what you're calling us to. Uh, May we be like the widow, God, who gave all that she had, her two mites, Father. And so, uh, Lord, as we pray over this offering today, would you take these, these gifts Uh, the generosity of your people, Lord, and would you multiply them to do ministry here for the people uh, in this this area around our church, God, for those in our church, and uh, God, that you would be blessed, Lord, uh, and worshiped as a result of our giving today, and we thank you for what you're going to do through that giving. We thank you for, for how our hearts will be changed as a result of hearing your words today, and we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I settle in, because you already are, I just want to say it's good to be back with you from the Midwest, spending time with my children and my grandchildren, and, and just, uh, I don't know about you, but I want to go back to the song that we just sang, that, that phrase, I don't know if it captured your heart like it did mine, but the goodness of God running after us. Um, just think about that for a second. I mean, the fact that, what that implies to me at least, and I know it's been true in my life, is there's been times when really for God to bless me, he had to catch me. Because I was moving away from God. I was trying to do my own thing. I was really living my own way, sometimes willfully, sometimes ignorantly. But God has compassion, his desire to bless us, to be kind to us, to be merciful, literally pursues us. And I hope that's what your experience is today. And if you're struggling with a difficult week like some of you are, I know, or maybe a difficult year already, I just want you to remember that in the midst of that, God is running after you to pour out his goodness, his mercy, his grace in your life. I just want to refresh your memory. I don't know if you believe, it's hard for me to believe we're already almost to the end of March, but some of you were here and some of you weren't, but way back at the very beginning of this year, the very first Sunday of this year, I, I kicked off a series entitled Great by Choice. You may or may not remember that, you probably don't, but we started the very first Sunday of the year looking at Solomon's choice, Solomon's request that God would grant him wisdom. And as part of that message, I talked to you about the fact, and it really is original with Andy Stanley, 20 years ago, he wrote a book called, you know, The Greatest Question Ever. And I really do agree with Andy Stanley that the very best question that you and I could ask in life is what's the wise thing to do? Because you know, and I know, folks, there are many, many important questions in life. I mean, my kids are there, and I worked as a chaplain among college students, and at that time, they're making all these important decisions in life. You know, should I or shouldn't I take this job? Should I or should I not buy a house or should I rent? Should I or shouldn't I marry this person? All these important big questions 
But I would suggest to you that the reason the, the question of what's the wise thing to do is the best question ever is because that question helps us answer those important questions, not only effectively, but I would suggest to you what it does as well, that question helps us avoid regret. I mean, probably more than anything else, what I deal with in ministry, I deal with as I sit with people, and even in my own life, is the issue of regret, right? Things we should have done, could have done, but didn't do. Things that we wish we never had done. Things we wish we would have done. And here's the reason I raise all that, because I'm willing to guess for you, like myself, that if we're honest, that most of the regrets in our lives could have been avoided if we had asked on the front end, what's the wise thing to do? Because the reality is, when we really think about it, while none of us plan to mess up our lives, many times we do because we don't, on the front end, ask the question as we're acting, as we're deciding what's the wise thing to do. And as a result, on the back end, and it's only on the back end, after the decision's been made, after the action's been taken, that we realize we, we didn't decide and we didn't act in a wise way. Is that true for you? You don't have to nod your head. I know it's true for me that many times, many heartaches, many regrets in life could have been avoided if we'd asked the question, what's the wise thing to do? So here's the question we're really going to grapple with today. How do we live a wise life? How do we live a life marked by wisdom? Because here's what I know, and you know it too, folks. Wisdom is something much more than simply being smart. Something much more than simply, if you will, being intellectually gifted. Because all we have to do to prove that statement true is turn on the news, to flip on a, you know, an app on our phone and see story after story of bright people, brilliant people, smart people, making very dumb, very, if I can say it, very stupid decisions. It's almost a regular part of the news cycle, isn't it? Bright, brilliant people making really dumb decisions. In fact, a couple scholars, the names aren't important, but they wrote a book entitled Why Smart People Do Dumb Things. And the research in the book is fascinating because what these really scholars conclude is this, that when they looked at the lives of a group of very, very smart people, they, they, they came to this conclusion, that they were in fact smart, in fact brilliant in their area of expertise, in the area where they became famous. But many times they had been dumb. In fact, every time what they were studying, they had been dumb, had not been smart in areas that we often don't think about being smart in, being wise in. Areas such as pride, greed, ambition. And because of that, they made some really dumb choices. Another scholar, an historian, actually wrote another book confirming their research. It's called The March of Folly. I love the title, The March of Folly. And what she did as an historian, she examined some of the most catastrophic decisions in history, some of the greatest calamities in history. For example, she looked at the Trojans taking the wooden horse into their city. She looked at the, at the, the Reformation uh, popes really causing and prompting, provoking the Protestant Reformation. She, she looked at the British losing the America to we Americans. She looked at the stalemate that took place in Vietnam, and what she concluded, without exception, she said, behind each and every one of those historical events, she said, I found excessive ambition, decadence, and even perversity. She said, that's my conclusion as a historian, that they, these one calamitous events in history took place because of character issues. And so here's what I'm trying to get at today. Here's what James is going to make clear for us. When you and I talk about wisdom, we're not talking about being book smart. 
okay? All that makes us is wise, or rather intelligent. What, it, what we're going to be talking about today is when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about being soul smart. We're talking about being character smart because wisdom flows from character. And what we're going to see over the next 20 minutes or so is James is going to unpack this in, I think, some very, very powerful ways. So let's just jump in. Let's dig in. If you haven't already taken your message notes out, do that and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, in front of you or with you or on your phone to James chapter 3. Because we're going to look, beginning with verse 13, we're going to look you know, at about 10, 12 verses this morning or really about five or six verses, rather, that really unpack this for us. So let's dig in. Let's begin reading with verse 13. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Here's what James writes. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life and by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So in other words, here's James's leading argument. His saying being wise isn't about knowledge. It's about a lifestyle. He says it's not about doing well on an IQ test. Instead, he says it's about doing well on a character test, which is why knowledge of the truth doesn't make us wise. Instead, what makes us wise, folks, is the practice of the truth, specifically God's truth. For as James says over and over again in his letter, it's not just knowing, it's also doing. And the reason James says that over and over again in his letter, some of you might think he only has one string to play, is because that's an, a crucial, vital truth as James sees it when it comes to the Christian life. That you and I need to understand that it's not enough to simply know the truth of God's Word. It's not simply to know the right thing to do. We have to do it. And I believe James stresses that because the tendency we all have, and I'll get a little academic for just a moment, maybe give you a word to help you solve a crossword puzzle, but our tendency is to equate wisdom with orthodoxy. And we've all heard the word orthodoxy. And all that orthodoxy means is right thinking, that I think right. I have biblical, if you will, beliefs. I have orthodox belief. But James says, no, it's more than that. Honestly, James is saying wisdom isn't just orthodoxy. At its root, it's orthopraxy, which is exactly what the word sounds like. It's right living. It's about right practice. In other words, we have to have orthodoxy. It has to underlie our, our practice, our living, folks. But James is saying is all we do is we stop there. If that's all we focus on as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is simply on right thinking, right belief, then we will be educated but we will not be wise. Because James repeatedly says, folks, we have to focus on right living. And more accurately, to stay with the text this morning, James says we have to focus on wise living. And so here's the question that we want to grapple with. How do we live wisely? How, how do we live that wise life? Thankfully, James gives us guidance. Again, let's go back to verse 13 and just really begin to dig into this. He gives us guidance on how to live wisely before he writes, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him or her show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So, okay, here's what James is doing. He's contending that real wisdom should be equated with right living. Right living. Living wisely. And then he goes on and he says that right living needs to be marked by humility. And the reason humility is so central to right living is because it takes humility for you and I to admit where we don't know what we don't know. It takes humility for you and I to admit that we are failing in places in our lives. It takes humility to say, I know this is an area in my life that I need to grow in. 
spiritually, intellectually, relationally. It takes humility. And so what James is saying here is humility is key to living wisely because it makes us teachable. That's the key for James. You and I have to be teachable. Now, probably every one of us here, whether in the room or online, recognize the name of Socrates. Am I right? I mean, we all recognize it. We've heard it somewhere in school. And one of the things that Socrates was well known for was his wisdom. But there's a legend attached to his wisdom that I think is fascinating and that really applies to what we're talking about this morning, that the Oracle of Delphi is said to have once said that Socrates was the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, was the wisest man in the world at that time. And Socrates, again, as the legend goes, was taken back by that because he did not see himself as being a wise man. But because that kind of provoked his thought and it kind of intrigued him, what he decided to do was to meet with everyone in in, in the world that he had access at that time who was perceived to be wise. And as he made his rounds, as he had those meetings, what Socrates said he discovered was none of these people were really wise. Yet to the person, the thing that he noticed is every one of them thought they were wise. And then Socrates said, I had this revelation. Now, those are my words, not his. But he said, I came to this realization that the reason the oracle of Delphi said I was wise was because I realized I wasn't. And therefore, it made me teachable. But folks, James is trying to tell us there's more. As important as humility is to wisdom in your life and mine, James says there's more to it than that. And he goes on, therefore, and he develops for us a, a deeper level And he says there's more to it than just humility, and he's going to identify some things. So take a look at this as he identifies two enemies of real wisdom. For he writes this, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, let me just ask you a question, a rhetorical question, folks. If I had started this morning by saying to you that what we're going to do today is we're going to look at James's prescription for wisdom, and we're going to see how James says to you and me and to his readers that how as very smart men and women, we can avoid doing dumb things. And in that context, what would, would you have ever thought in that kind of introduction that it would have included a discussion about selfish ambition and bitter envy? If you're like me, you wouldn't have anticipated that. You never would have thought that's where James is going if you just read that in his letter. Which tells me this, and I think it suggests the same thing to you, that that means we probably need to spend some time here. We need to figure out what it is that James found so important that he makes this unique and in some ways counterintuitive statement about what it means to be wise. And so let's just jump into it. And what does it mean? I mean, you think about it for a second, but what is it and what does it mean when we talk about, you know, bitter envy and selfish ambition? And my assumption is just my assumption that I would guess that most of us are probably better at defining selfish ambition than we really are envy. And so let's just begin there. Let's begin with selfish ambition. Let me begin with the definition. Here's how I define for you today selfish ambition. It's self-promotion. That's what selfish ambition is. It's self-promotion. It's seeking attention for ourselves by pushing our own agenda, by pushing, if you will, our own image and our own influence. It's being preoccupied with our reputation, our success, and our influence. In other words, selfish ambition makes it all about me. Beginning and end, it's all about me. But envy, I would suggest you, is far more subtle. 
In fact, when it comes to, even when I said envy, some of you probably thought this. You go, Jerry, you know, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, envy is just really looking at someone else, isn't it? And just kind of wishing I had a little bit more of what they had. What's so wrong with that? What's the problem with that? And I get that, and that's a common understanding of envy, but that is not why the, the Christian community, the church, for now 1,800 years has identified envy as one of the deadly sins. Because envy, what we just shared and what I just said, this idea that it's only about me just looking at your life and saying, hey, I like what you have, you've got a boat, I'd like to have a boat too, and that's all it is, is not what it's about. Because see, that's just where envy begins. So envy is about me as a C student looking at the A student and wishing I had the A's. It's those of us making $50,000 looking at someone making $150,000 and wishing that was that. That's just the beginning leg of envy. But here's what we need to understand. Here's why the Christian community has identified envy for 1,800 years as one of the seven deadly sins. is because left unchecked, what envy does is it moves from the desire for a thing to actually turning into dislike for the person who possesses it. Do you follow that? Envy isn't just, and the reason the Christian community has said it's one of the deadly sins, it isn't just about me just going, hey, I like what you have, and I like to have some of it too. It's I begin to resent you for having it. I begin to dislike you for having it. So let me give you the definition of envy. It's very hard. Envy is viewing another person with malice. Because what we do is we look at their life, we look what they have, we look what they've accomplished, and we resent them because we feel like they have what we deserve. We feel like they have what rightly belongs to us. So understand, envy isn't just something about you and I desiring something someone else has. It involves resentment toward the person who possesses it. Absolute resentment. And folks, when that resentment turns toxic, and it always does, sooner or later, folks, it leads to hostility And here's where I think it is most insidious. It leads not only to hostility, but it leads to you and I actually finding joy in bad things happening to that person or the accomplishment of thing that they possess. That's where it gets ugly. That's where it is absolutely sinful. And listen to me. All of us can fall prey to that. Because envy is so subtle in the way it works itself into our lives and it plays itself out in our lives and in our actions. Let me give you a couple examples. Just random examples. If you're a business owner, do you ever secretly find yourself kind of enjoying the news that competitors' you know, sales are down, that they're losing customers? If you're an athlete, do you ever find yourself secretly you know, with a secret twinge of pleasure when you hear that one of the other stars of a competing team is sidelined and maybe it'll be out for the entire season? If you're a homeowner, When you drive by the neighbor's house and you notice that the grass is turning brown and patchy and the flowers are wilting, do you find a bit of secret satisfaction? I mean, you fill in the blank, folks. A politician of another party is caught in a scandal. A religious leader, a pastor, a priest is, is caught in moral failure. A coworker is passed over for the promotion. Be honest with yourself. In those moments, do you find yourself secretly celebrating those things? Even if it's just with an inner smirk? A little twinge of pleasure? But listen to me. Envy leads us far deeper into an abyss 
than just simply the fact that we take pleasure in another person's pain and, and lack of success or failure. If unchecked, what envy does is it leads us to seek to destroy what it is we desire and sometimes even the person who possesses it. There, there's an old Jewish legend about an angel appearing to, to a shopkeeper. And the angel told the shopkeeper that I will give you whatever you desire. There's just one condition. That I'm going to give double to your rival whom you envy, whatever you ask for. And so the man thought about it, and he thought about it, and thought about it, and he finally said to the angel, I know what I want. I want you to make me blind in one eye. Now, folks, that's dark. I mean, that's really dark, but the reality is it really does illustrate how envy will not stop in your life and mine until either what we desire is possessed or the person who possesses it is destroyed. Now again, remember what James is getting at here. James is getting at the fact that his arguing that envy is this, this madness, this relational madness that robs us of wisdom. And let me just share with you three ways that it does it, very practical ways that that. that Envy robs us of wisdom. The first way is this, that it keeps us from looking at ourselves the way we should. Envy keeps you, it keeps me from looking at ourselves the way we should. In other words, when you and I look at another person with envy or in envy, in other words, when we focus on what they have and we don't have, it keeps you and me from focusing on what God would have us be and what God would have us do. It takes the focus and puts it in the absolute wrong place, a destructive place. The second thing I would say to you, envy robs us of wisdom by keeping us from looking at others the way we should look at them. First, it keeps us from looking at ourselves the way we ought to look at ourselves, and then it keeps us from looking at others the way we ought to look at others. So imagine for a second that somebody you know at work in the neighborhood here in church accomplishes something, gets something, has something that you wish you could accomplish, have, or do. Now, if you and I in that moment choose to go down the road of envy, then folks, we need to understand we're, go we're going on a journey that is going to lead us first to desire, then to resentment, and ultimately to destruction, which does absolutely not a thing, doesn't take us one step closer to getting the thing that we desire or becoming the person that we desire to be, that we believe God desires us to be. And so instead of giving in to envy, folks, what we need to learn to do instead is to learn from that person's achievements in humility, because remember, humility makes us teachable. And so when you and I come to that place where we're willing, choose to move beyond envy and actually begin to embrace a sense of security about who God has made us and who God, what God wants us to be and to do, folks, we can come to that place in our lives where we can celebrate and learn from the achievements and success of others. And then we begin to see them the way that God would have us see them. The final way that envy robs you and robs me of wisdom is by destroying the life that we have. Absolutely destroying the life that we have right now. Now it's ironic, but we all know it's true, folks. We've all seen it, that envy destroys the person who gives into it. Whether that's me or you, envy destroys the person who gives themselves into it. Give you another ancient story today. Way back at the time of, of the ancient Greek Olympics, there was an athlete who was so exceptional, so outstanding, that the, his fellow citizens in the city actually built and set up a statue in his honor. And a fellow competitor, another athlete in the city, was so consumed 
with envy about that, that every night he would go out and try to pull the statue off its pedestal. And night after night, night after night, he went out and he tried to pull that to destroy that honor, to destroy that achievement. And one night he finally succeeded. But in pulling it off the pedestal, he actually pulled it over on himself. And it killed him. It crushed him to death. Now here's the reason I share that, folks. That's the irony of envy. By you and I, when we give into it, and we seek to destroy the accomplishments of others, folks, all we do is destroy ourselves. That's the irony of envy. Well, folks, James has painted for us a picture of the folly, the foolishness of giving in to selfish ambition and bitter envy. And in response to that, he says, we're not going to stop there. He says, I'm going to go on and I'm going to describe for you what wisdom from God looks like. And so we look at verses 17, because in verse 17, he gives us a snapshot, a, an incredible picture of what wisdom for God looks like. Here's what he writes. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, if you count along as I read that, you realize that James just gave us a list of eight marks of a wisely lived life. And this is my contention to you. You're free to disagree. But I believe James, in doing that, gives us the clearest, most concise description of a wisely lived life anywhere in the Bible. And while those eight characteristics, those eight marks, I really do believe could each have a sermon of their own, we're not going to do that today. You could breathe a sigh of relief. But what I would like to do is walk through those eight and just give you just kind of a snapshot of what James is talking about there. So let's look at these eight marks of a wisely lived life, according to James. First, he says, a wisely lived life is pure. It's pure. In other words, folks, it's free from self-seeking, self-promotion, and ulterior motives. In other words, a wisely lived life is not, as we looked earlier, is not self-centered. It's not self-seeking. Second, a wisely lived life is peace-loving. And when James is talking about peace-loving, what he says, it's neither, it's neither combative nor, you know, uh, destructive. Instead, it seeks peace in its relationships with others rather than conflict. It's not divisive. It's not combative. It's, it, it pursues peace. That's a wisely lived life. A third description, Mark, James says, a wisely lived life is considerate. And we all know what consideration is. It's thinking of others. And so a wisely lived life, when you and I live a wisely lived life, we're not concerned predominantly with our rights, our privileges, our needs, our desires. It's not that those things are important to me, but they're not the dominant thing in our life. They're not the driving force in our life. That's why one biblical commentator kind of paraphrased this, this idea of consideration. He says he calls it a sweet reasonableness. That's what James is talking about, that we're, a wisely lived life is characterized by this sweet reasonableness as we interact with others. The fourth characteristic or mark of a wisely lived life, James says, is submission. Scott talked about that earlier. In other words, it is first and foremost a, a life that is willing to yield itself to the authority and the Word of God, but it doesn't stop there. It's also willing to yield itself to others, to bring itself under authority, to bring itself under leadership. In other words, it's not power-hungry. It's not a power-hungry life. Fifth, a wisely lived life, according to James, is full of mercy. 
And again, just let me give you a layman's definition, or a working definition, rather, of mercy. And that is just, folks, you and I caring about others who are going through difficult times. It's being compassionate for those who are going through difficult times. And one of the best places to see mercy in action in your life and mine, or see and note its absence, is when you and I are in a position of power. And we're in a place where we could exercise authority over someone, or maybe, you know, even seek vengeance towards someone, and we opt not to. When we choose instead to be merciful, when we choose instead to really be compassionate. The sixth thing is James says, a wisely lived life is also full of good fruit. And that's just another way of James saying what we looked at two weeks ago. It's, it's full of good deeds. And I want you to notice that he says it's full. In other words, it's characterized. It's not the occasional event in your life. And mine, he says, a wisely lived life is a life that's characterized by gracious acts, compassionate intervention. The seventh thing he says about a wisely lived life is it's impartial. So James means there, the folks, it doesn't show favoritism. It's devoid of prejudice. And finally, for the eighth characteristic, he says, a wisely lived life is sincere. And again, I think we all could define that. In other words, it's authentic. It's not phony. It's not two-faced. Now, I want you to think about those eight marks of a wisely lived life, because according to James, what his arguing, his whole point has really been building to this, these, these last few verses, is saying, I want you to understand, reader, and, and indirectly he wants to say to you and me, I want you to understand, reader, that that's what an anti-selfish ambition, anti-bitter envy, anti-foolishness, wisely lived life looks like. He says, that's the picture. That's the target. That's what we need to be aspiring to. And with that said, kind of to wrap all, all the things up, James makes one final statement. He adds one final thought, and here's what it is. He said, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, you might be reading that and go, Jerry, I haven't had a lot of time to think about it, but what in the world is James talking about there? What he's really saying is this. If you and I choose to live wisely, if we truly choose to live out these eight marks of a wisely lived life, then folks, our life will be marked by right relationships. That's all that right, righteousness really is. It's just right relationships, both publicly and privately, both vertically and horizontally, with others and with God. And is contrasting that as saying that's what our life will be marked by rather than chaos and suffering that comes when we live a life of selfish ambition and bitter envy. Which again, go back to the beginning of this message, which ultimately you know and I know leads to what? Major regret. Deep, deep regret. And so James ends this portion of his letter to his readers, to those first century believers in his brother Jesus, reminding them that what his brother, our Lord and Savior Jesus, desires for us is to live a life of peace and right relationships rather than a life of selfish ambition and bitter envy. Because James understands from walking with his brother, praying to his father, that that kind of life is a life that's marked by wisdom. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much and so sincerely for what we're learning through James' letter. 
And thank you specifically today for guiding him and, and leading him to lay out for us the path to wisdom. My prayer today is that it has been all week in preparation, Father, is that all of us, myself included, will take his words to heart. And as a result, we will choose to live lives marked by wisdom rather than lives marked by selfish ambition and bitter envy, which ultimately leads to inconsolable regret. But Father, in light of all that's going on in the world, all, all that we've seen even this morning in the news, I, I just want to pause and I want to pray in light of this text today. For the millions upon millions who are being affected by the war in the Ukraine, I pray that wisdom and humility will in fact guide the words and actions of our world political, military, and religious leaders. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for right relationships. So guide us as your people, individually and corporately, as we seek to not only sow peace, but to serve those who are affected by this war at their point of greatest need. Fill our hearts with compassion, Father. Fill our hearts with forgiveness and generosity through the person and the presence of your Spirit because we know in our of ourselves there is nothing good. But you pour all blessing and all goodness and all faith and righteousness into our life because of the presence of your Spirit. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. What a message. I hope that if you feel like you are living a life of regret, that you'll think seriously about a relationship with Jesus. We sang earlier about the goodness of God, and I couldn't help but be reminded uh, that goodness, we can only recognize it if we have that relationship with Jesus. And I have had a tough life, like many of you. You know, we all have things that we go through in life. Um, it's easy to look at someone else, as Jerry talked about envy, and maybe be envious of their life and think that they have it all together. And we all have struggles. But I am so good that, so glad I can sing of God's goodness. How he has just shown his goodness in my life. It is so important that we share that goodness with others, that we share about our relationship with Jesus with others. And guys, as we come to Easter, Easter is maybe the easiest time of the year to invite others to join us here on a Sunday morning. It's indeed the biggest Sunday for Peckway and for most churches. People are more apt to come out on Easter so I want to challenge you today, asking you, who is it that you're going to invite? That's the first call that I have today. Who is God laying on your heart right now? And if you're bold enough, I want to challenge you to write that on the back of your connection card, or if you're watching online, maybe post it in the chat section. I want to be able to pray for those individuals that you're thinking about extending an invite to. 
So if you'll be so kind as to put that either in the chat or on your connection card, I want to join you in praying for that impending invitation. Second, uh, to make it a little easier, if you are thinking of someone who has kids, we will have an egg hunt here during kids' ministry on Easter morning. Several ways that you can get involved, and I really encourage you to each get involved in some way, whether it's with the egg hunt or it's acting as an additional greeter, because as I said, we have more people here on Easter, so we want people to have added opportunity to connect so we're going to add greeters right here in the auditorium, uh, greeters in the hallways for kids to help families get kids to classrooms, greeters outside. So maybe that's one way you could get involved for Easter. The other way, as I mentioned, is the egg hunt. Do you provide candy? Do you fill eggs? Do you help with building our sets and decorating the gym or with cleanup or hiding eggs between services on Easter for the second round of kids? Lots of ways. You can check that list out inside your bulletin. I'm not going to talk any more about it, but there's a list of opportunities you can mark on your connection card on the back. If you're interested in learning more about one of those opportunities, you can write the letter and the number of that activity on your card and someone will follow up with you. Doesn't mean that you're signing up right now. Um, we can follow up and just answer questions you might have. All right. So, a really, really easy way to sign up is if you pull your phone out right now and you just text VOLUNTEER to 717-872-5679. All right, simple as that, that you'll be uh, led, it'll just take you to a link that shows you more about those opportunities and you can sign up at this moment. There's also a display in the Welcome Center. Go check out the pictures if you're like, egg hunt in the gym? What do you do, just roll some eggs out? No, we fully decorate and create a magical space for kids. So check that out so you have an idea of what you're inviting to and what you might potentially help out with. Let's make sure that those in our lives don't live a life of regret. Let's invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And this hopefully gives you just um, a step that helps to make it easier. So I challenge you just to think about that as you leave here today. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us, and I hope that you'll be back next week. You're dismissed.